0: Really, the, the human body is not just a collection of human cells. We're actually a composite organism. We have microbial cells as well.
1: Saturated fat really seems to be the worst culprit.
2: Try and eat for your gut microbes try and pick plants that are colorful and lots of
3: flavor. Some of the microbes, you know, I think something like 5% of the new species that appeared were from the fermented foods.
4: Exercise or activity trumps, you know, in my opinion, diet diet, particularly with respect to body composition and protein, like hands down.
5: Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep and alignment. Facts, nuance and trustworthy recommendations minus the hyperbole. Hi friends, great to be here with you. Happy New Year. I'm your host Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. To bring in the new year, I thought it would be good to reflect together and consolidate some of the memorable moments and key takeaways from 2022. Over the next two episodes, we'll hear from a range of guests, including microbiologists, medical doctors, exercise physiologists, epidemiologists, and neurologists on a variety of topics that I believe can genuinely help each of us live better for longer. In part one, today's episode, we traverse how to think about nutrition so we can better make sense of claims online diet and cardiometabolic health, how you can flip the switch on your microbiome so the trillions of gut bugs in your large intestine reward you with better health, and the benefits up for grabs through consuming our food over less hours, otherwise known as time-restricted eating or fasting. Please do enjoy. Each cell in our body has its own clock, which controls how that cell behaves. This is why things like our ability to use glucose and fats for energy production and hormone levels fluctuate throughout the day. Physiological and metabolic changes that are programmed into our cells to help us achieve a biological state that prepares us for the activity that we need to do, being alert, exercising, sleeping, etc. What happens if this system becomes disrupted and we lose alignment between our physiological state and what our body needs to do, known as circadian disruption. Who better to explain this than circadian biologist and author of the circadian code dr sachin panda one of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health you can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like inside tracker the nice thing about inside tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash simon for this exclusive offer. That's InsightTracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Amil. Amil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential Eight multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential Eight contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in, and the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega threes, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact. Taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. What's the problem, uh, Sachin, with circadian disruption? So if these, these clocks are a little bit out of whack, why yeah. is that a, a problem from a, a physiological point of view and from a, a health point of view? And, and for, for a listener that's thinking, um, you know, how would that kind of present? How would that affect them in terms of how they feel or potentially their sort of long-term health?
6: Yeah, so just imagine if you're going to, if you have an 8 to 5 job and um, some days, and if you are the boss, and some days some of your employees, uh, they show up at uh, 7.30 and then some days they can show up at 10 uh, or they just randomly show up in the evening. Um, They may be working hard, but then when it comes to promotion time, you may not give them a raise because they're not sticking to Mm -hmm. time. The reason is your office is also connected to the outside world through shipping, receiving, all the other stuff. So similarly, a body is wired, programmed to do certain things at certain time. And when we don't do, when our behaviors are not in alignment with what our body is programmed to do, um, you may not feel. I mean, you may not see the consequences right away, Um, but over long term, it essentially compromises. Our physiology, we may not be able to digest our food properly or we may not be able to control our blood sugar properly. So over days, months or years, that can slowly show up as, for example, diabetes, obesity, metabolic disease. Uh, At the same time, our clocks in our immune system also uh, make sure that we mount very strong immune reaction when we are supposed to see pathogens, which are mostly during daytime or in the evening. And at other time, the inflammation should subside, should go down when we are resting. Um, So when our circadian rhythms are disrupted, then our immune system doesn't see that um, resting time or rejuvenation time. So we stay with chronic inflammation and our risk for cancer and certain other diseases can go up. Similarly, our circadian rhythm also has downtime for our brain to repair, reset and rejuvenate and detoxify. And if we don't sleep properly or if you don't sleep enough or if we have fragmented sleep, then our brain cannot repair itself and then we can end up with affective disorder, depression, anxiety, panic mm-hmm. attack, etc. all the way to even alge- risk our risk for al- Alzheimer's disease or dementia can also go up.
5: Mm-hmm. Okay, so it r- really does have the the capacity to affect many aspects of our health from the sounds of it. Do you have a, a sense as to how um, important circadian biology is to our health sort of relative to some of the other big rocks that people talk about, like the types of food that we eat or um, doing exercise or smoking or drinking alcohol, you know, how important is kind of nurturing these circadian rhythms in the big picture?
6: Well, it's really hard to say, for example, smoking and (laughs) circadian rhythm health, um, that difficult to compare. So now if you think about circadian rhythms is actually an umbrella. It's an integrating mechanism to integrate sleep, physical activity, um, good nutrition, all of them together. For example, Mm. if we don't sleep well, then our brain doesn't work properly to decide what to eat or how much to eat. So we end up eating energy dense diet, or we end up overeating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when we think of um, managing our nutrition, you may try to manage your nutrition, but if you are not sleeping well, or if you are staying awake late into the night, then your brain may be confused. It will actually make you that extra hungry to reach for that extra food. So similarly, when it comes to exercise, um, if it's a very simple example. If we haven't slept well and if we haven't eaten properly and if our digestive system hasn't digested our food properly, it will be really hard to hit that treadmill and stay on that treadmill for 60 minutes or to go for a long run or to lift weight or whatever exercise you're doing. So that's why um, the three foundations of health, that's sleep, nutrition, And physical activity Mm -hmm. Um, they're directly or indirectly controlled by the clock the clock Mm -hmm. tells us when to sleep and how much to sleep the clock also makes us to be hungry and to be less hungry at night it actually controls our appetite and satiety signal and it also um, makes us uh, it also primes our body to do better physical activity and gain best for our buck in terms of exercise, Mm -hmm. if we exercise in the late afternoon. So in that way, this is, this combines all these pillars of health that we know of. So when we fix our circadian rhythm, then everything else falls into its right place. It becomes much easier to pay attention to nutrition, activity, and sleep.
5: When it comes to weight loss, energy balance matters. Our body has to utilize more energy than we consume In order for body weight to go down but there's no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to creating a calorie deficit some people like calorie counting some like doing low carb or low fat and others like narrowing their eating window what's described as time-restricted eating by scientists one of the prominent researchers interested in time-restricted eating is dr courtney peterson she joins us here to better understand this tool if someone's uh, listening to this and thinking very cool study. Um, early time restricted eating um, right. sounds like something that I might try. But they heard us speak about the study design, and they they
7: mm-hmm.
5: they're not so keen on counting calories. And <laughs> yes. uh, you know, I think there's many people out there that have tried it. They think it's it's mundane. Um, it it perhaps. Uh, is putting too much focus on food all day. It's a lot to think mm-hmm. about, um, especially right. if you're a busy person yes. with kids and yes. job. Um, it's a job. It's just an extra task and, and we only have so much bandwidth. So um, I guess that person might be considering, well, is there any benefit to me doing the early time-restricted eating if I'm also not counting calories Will will there still be an advantage for me in terms of um, my body weight and my metabolic health?
7: Yeah, absolutely. The vast so we're up to over just over fifty clinical trials on time restricted eating in humans, and if you look at what are called meta analyses, so these are um, sort of where you lump together the results from all the studies, and you see is there weight loss benefit. Almost all these studies have participants not count calories. And if you look at the net effect across all studies, there is a benefit for weight loss. Um, and just for context, about half of set clinical trials on time-restricted eating report a weight loss benefit. The other half don't. But when you pull all the results together, there is a net benefit for weight loss. And most of these studies um, don't have participants count calories. So yes, absolutely. In fact, we think one of the big advantages of time-restricted eating is you don't have to count calories. You just count time on the clock. Okay. Way easier rule for most people, right? So for our studies, when I talk to other scientists, they're kind of blown away by how little instruction we have to give people, right? Like if you came in and tried to get someone to eat a healthy diet, like a Mediterranean diet, low-carb diet, you know, you name it. There's a lot of food education that goes into that, right? And there can be financial barriers to people mm. and logistical barriers. Like I got to come home from work and cook a, you cook a meal, and then you may have to make trade-offs. Like am I spending time with my family or, or am I not? But with time-restricted eating and most forms of intermittent fasting, it's a timing rule. So then it just becomes for, I think, your listeners, do I want to try this or do I not? I think a lot of that is, one, I'd say there are lots of meal timing approaches out there. But second, a lot of the figuring out whether you can do it is just your schedule, right? So you might be listening to me and think, well, early time-restricted eating is not for me. So what should I try instead? And I have two responses for that. So I'll tell you, Most of our participants in the study did not want to do early time-restricted eating. They wanted the benefit of the free weight loss program that we gave them. But Mm. after they completed the study and tried it out, 42% of people wanted to continue with it.
0: Mm. And
7: the really interesting thing is the people who sticked with it were the ones who got the biggest benefit in their energy levels, right? So we think that some of these benefits may offset some of the time inconveniences. Obviously, this is a super personal decision, right? Some person... Some people might say, like, I just have to have dinner with my family. My husband gets home at, you know, 7 sure. p.m. What do I do, right? So there are other approaches. So one is you could follow the old adage of eating breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and and uh, dinner like a pauper. Or there's some data suggesting that doing time-restricted eating by skipping breakfast and eating mi- in the middle of the day still has a, has a number of benefits, just not as many. So Two larger clinical trials came out earlier this year comparing early versus later in the day time-restricted eating. One of those clinical trials found greater benefits for weight loss for early time-restricted eating, greater benefits for blood sugar control, for the gut microbiota, and for inflammation. So early in the day was better. The other group also found early in the day was better. For many, for many of the same health outcomes, but there were some differences. So the second study, weight loss was about the same, whether you did early versus middle of the day, time-restricted eating. Um, but there were still better benefit, greater benefits for blood sugar control um, and blood pressure with eating earlier in the day. But the punchline is there still seem to be some benefits from eating in the middle of the day. So that could be another approach for people.
5: It's a great point that you make that the the kind of education aspect of this, there's a lot lot less barrier to entry to kind of understand the concept. The bigger barrier is how do you integrate this into your lifestyle with your schedule and make it sustainable. Um, And we kind of spoke earlier, but do you think there would still be benefits to say incorporating this early time restricted eating Monday to Friday, I'm thinking of the socialite here, and then on Saturday, Sunday, eating eating across however many hours. um, Do you think that would still still lead to a kind of net benefit over time
7: yeah great question uh i'll answer this question in two ways so one data from animal studies suggests that if animals practice time restricted eating five out of seven days a week they still get a lot of the same benefits not to the same degree but they're still getting benefits and then recently for the same study that you saw published in jama internal medicine from my lab we did what was called a per protocol analysis where we looked at people who consistently stuck with early time restricted eating five days a week, every week. And we found among these individuals, they had, they lost more weight. Uh, they had better blood sugar control. Um, they had, um, lower heart rates and they had greater improvements in mood. Um, the other really cool, interesting thing, uh, is they slept less. And at okay. first, we were a little worried about this, right? Normally, if people sleep less, you think that's a bad thing. Mm. But what was really fascinating is they also reported greater energy levels. Mm. So I'm now wondering if they have less of a need for sleep with their early time-restricted eating, because there's either better sleep consolidation or there's just a longer time to repest, repair, rest and repair before sleep. And so therefore, they're sleeping less. And so now I'm super fascinated about the effects on sleep and see, trying to understand what that really mm. means.
5: You just got the attention of all of the the workaholics, sleep sleep <laughs> I know. when you're dead.
7: <laughs> I, know. I know, I know. So we don't know for certain that this is a benefit yet, right? It could be something negative because generally we assume that. But okay. if, if this is a true, genuine benefit and other people, other researchers find the same thing, I think it would be huge. And the benefit in our study was about 30 minutes.
5: What would be interesting there is to look not just at the sleep quantity, but also the quality. Is it affecting... Correct. Is it, yeah. is it uh, in some ways enhancing sleep quality? How long is the average person's eating window? And if we're going to narrow this, what is optimal? When should we start eating and when should we finish? Dr. Sachin Panda answers that. So I'm interested in where this kind of enters this conversation with regards to our circadian biology. Uh, how, what a, how many hours across the day does the average person... Right now, say in America, eat and how is this uh, affecting circadian biology?
6: Yeah, so the concept of uh, eating within a certain hours it relates to circadian biology in many different ways. One is our digestive system is primed to um, digest. So the overall idea is just like our brain can stay awake during daytime, solve complex math and then wants to sleep at night to repair, reset, and rejuvenate, almost every organ in our body also has a peak time when it can perform much better and needs some downtime to repair, reset, rejuvenate. That's the overarching principle. So now if we look at every single aspect of our digestive system, you know, um, when we eat something, it has to be digested in our stomach, and there has to be... A lot of acid secretion and then digestive juice. All the enzymes have to be secreted so that the food gets digested. It takes almost five hours to digest a good sized meal, uh, for example, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. So now um, let's start our math from the from the night time. Suppose say, one eats around say eight o'clock at night, although we finish eating at eight by eight eight fifteen. A stomach continues to work for the next five hours to digest that food. So that means around one o'clock or one thirty in the morning, that's when the stomach is finally getting some downtime to go to go to repair, reset, and rejuvenate. Right. And our stomach lining um, needs to repair nearly seven to ten percent of the cells that line the stomach. So that's a good amount of repair that happens. Mm-hmm. And then um, our, our lower, lower intestine, uh, the food moves in our digestive system because of this peristaltic action, because the, uh, the muscles contract and expand, so that's how they move when the food moves. Uh, but that action also slows down and also almost stops because the intestine needs to sleep. So as a result, the food actually doesn't move much. Um, so some of you, some of us, who when we eat late at night, next day we feel like the food is not digested, and it's not just a feeling. Actually, food doesn't get digested properly because the peristaltic movements stops. So now, uh, if we think that your stomach, just like our brain, needs seven to eight hours of downtime to repair, so that means if you eat at eight o'clock, and if your stomach gets a break at one o'clock in the morning, for the next seven to eight hours it needs that downtime so that it can repair itself, then one should not eat until at least 9 o'clock in the morning next day. So that's the simple math just, for the, just from the stomach point of view. And there are many other, uh, there are many other aspects of our uh, digestion, nutrient acu- uh, assimilation, and that essentially tell us that we should be eating uh, for no more than 12 hours mm-hmm. in a day because we need that five hours of digestion after the last meal and then seven to eight hours of repair and rejuvenation to be ready for the next day.
5: Mm -hmm. And how, how long is the average person currently eating over? What's a typical eating window if you were just to go and grab the average American?
6: Yeah. So another point is we don't eat the same at the exact same time every day. So for example, I'll give you an example and you can actually give me the answer. I'll give, give you some example and then ask you a question. So, for example, suppose say I eat today, I eat my breakfast at 6 in the morning. Tomorrow it will be 6.15. Day after tomorrow it's 5.45. Another day, maybe 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock. And um, if somebody asks you, hey, time Simon, uh, when does Sachin actually typically eats breakfast or when does his circadian system, which is expects to eat food, then the answer would be around six o'clock um, because one day maybe I ate at 5.45, but usually around six o'clock, 6.15, 6.30. So now if we do the same math and then take two weeks of food data from somebody and then ask what is the probable time window in which this person is likely to eat 90 plus percent of its meal, then the number that we get is 14 hours 45 minutes so nearly half of the Mm -hmm. adults in the us who are not doing shift work because for shift workers it's even worse um nearly 50 percent of adults eat for 14 hours 45 minutes or longer Mm -hmm. less than 10 percent of people actually eat consistently within 12 hours or less so that Mm -hmm. means there is room for improvement for almost all of us, to improve our health just by paying attention to when we eat or when we stop eating.
5: Right. And you you said it takes about five hours to sort of digest the last meal that you have at the end of the day. And then after that, you need about seven to eight hours to to kind of get that repair process happening. Um, Can you just define a little bit deeper what – what repair means is this where things like autophagy I often see sort of brought into this conversation? Um, is this where processes like that sort of come in?
6: Yeah, so there are many types of repair um, so let's start with the gut because during during the day we eat a lot of different stuff and then there is also uh, enzymes and acids that are secreted, and we damage nearly. 8 to 10% of our stomach lining. And you can think of this as the uh, your highway or the road, or you can think of the cobblestone road where you take out 8 to 10% of the stones every day, and they have to be repaired. They have to be physically replaced. And the way that happens is growth hormone from our pineal gland is secreted, and actually the secretion goes up with two signals: one is fasting. And second is our our deep sleep. Mm -hmm. So if we haven't eaten for several hours, and if we're in our deep sleep, then the growth hormone is secreted. That gives a signal to the stomach lining to divide and replace these damaged cells or or dead cells. And this is a very uh, relatable repair process that we can think of. And similarly, in the brain, when we sleep, then... Many of our, um, our toxins, brain toxins, that do get secreted into the outside of the cell, is almost like taking the trash can out and leaving it outside for the, for, the, uh, for the truck to come and pick it up. So that also happens. So that's like taking the toxin re- literally out of the body. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned autophagy and autophagy also occurs after several hours of fasting. So that's internal, almost like recycling process within the cell. So all mm-hmm. three types of repair where you are recycling within the cell, taking the trash out outside the cell, and even replacing the entire cell when it is damaged, all these three types of repairs happen uh, during our fasting plus sleep mm-hmm.
5: time. And so you said we, we should aim for at least 12 hours of period without awesome. food, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what would you, if we were to kind of just set this point before we keep going, if, if we were to kind of define what you think is the optimal eating window and, and sort of translate that into what that looks like in, in the standard person's um, daily life, so not a shift worker, just a standard person, what would that look like in terms of um, the time that someone, say, wakes up, their breakfast, lunch, dinner, and bedtime?
6: Yeah, so let's start with the bedtime because your next day actually begins with when you go to bed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So try to be consistent in going to bed and then try to be in bed for eight hours so that you can get seven hours of sleep. And then after waking up, one should wait for at least an hour or two before eating anything with calories because... Mm -hmm. That's the time when our sleep hormone, melatonin, goes down. And our cortisol rapidly rises and reaches its peak and then slowly adjusts its, itself. And um, our insulin function, our insulin secretion is adversely affected by both process, insulin, uh, sorry, by melatonin as well as high level of cortisol. So that's why one should avoid food for one to two hours in the morning. And then have your breakfast at a consistent time because since our clocks get synchronized with each other and with the outside world um, by two signals, light and food, and actually over the last five to 10 years, what we are seeing is food is a much more stronger signal for all our peripheral organs than light. Light is a very good signal from for brain, but food is very strong for the rest of our body. So, um mm-hmm. So eat your breakfast, the first meal uh, that has calories at a consistent time. And then try to eat all your meals in the next 8, 10 or maximum 12 hours. And in most of our clinical studies, we target 10 hours because 8 hours is a little bit difficult for long-term compliance. If somebody can do 8 hours for a month, 2 or 3, that's fine. But many of us cannot do it for uh, for our rest of our life, so mm-hmm. it's a good goal to have ten hours, so that okay. once in a while you can eat within eight hours, and once in a while if you if you cannot and go towards eleven or twelve, you are not actually breaking,
8: mm-hmm.
6: uh, not doing too much damage. So that's why ten hours is a ideal target.
5: So an example of that could be nine a.m. to seven p.m. Yeah, that might 9 work to well. Yeah. Um, Okay. I've got a couple questions on, on a few things there. So one that comes up and a lot of people sent me this section was, okay, within that fasting period in the morning, before you have that first meal, would things like supplements or medications or tea, coffee, let's say black coffee, um, would they be permitted- Within that, I mean, no one's no one's watching. But I'm thinking from a biological yeah. point of view, um, yeah. are they are they going to interrupt these biological repair mechanisms that you mentioned, or would they be okay to have in that fasting period?
6: So again, this is a question that we cannot do any clinical trial or systematic study, even in animals. We cannot feed animal coffee every day before we give right. them milk. But this is where we got to use some common sense and uh, arrive at. So there are many medications that need to be taken with empty stomach. So, so people should continue to take those in empty stomach. Best example is thyroid medication. Uh, people who right. are taking levothyroxine that should be taken in empty stomach in the morning. So that's fine. Sure. Uh, where it kind of becomes Grey John is coffee, coffee with a little bit of people will say, I just put half a teaspoon of sugar or a little bit of cream just to make it palatable. And um, one thing is it it relates to what is your goal. If your goal is to lose weight or maintain your blood glucose level, uh, then maybe a mild coffee or tea is... Is okay. So that's why we said there are three exceptions to the rule. One is if your job depends on it. Uh, for example, there are a lot of shift workers. They have to wake up early in the morning. They have the morning shift. They have to uh, be fully alert. And for them, tea or coffee is kind of uh, having a job or no job. For example, if you're a TV presenter, you have to be awake. Second is uh, for public safety. You should not be driving on the road. Uh, sleepy, it's better to Mm -hmm. be a little bit caffeinated. And then the third one is if you really cannot function without coffee, that's the only love in your life, then you can have it. But here is the um, thing, how it affects. So there are a lot of people who cannot drink strong coffee or tea for long term in empty stomach because that can lead to acid reflux um, or even panic or anxiety attack because they just the body cannot tolerate the strong coffee. So, if you're one of them, then um, try to see whether you can reduce your caffeine dose, or if you can delay that for an hour or two and have it after breakfast. In fact, in many in Turkey, uh, the literal meaning of breakfast means the meal after, the meal before coffee, because mm-hmm. a lot of people can have acid reflux in empty stomach. Now, let's come back to the physiology and see. What is breaking a fast or what affects your uh, body so that your insulin production and everything else begins to start. So if you take me and drain off my blood and figure out how much blood sugar I have, then uh, the official blood sugar level for somebody healthy is it should be less than 100 milligram per 100 milliliters. Mm-hmm. So that means if you find five liters of blood, that is the average blood that you'll find from a person like me, then I have five grams of sugar in my blood. And if it goes to six grams, then it'll be 120 milligrams for 100 ml. And you diagnose me as pre-diabetic. And if I have seven grams, then I'm diabetic because my fasting blood glucose will be 140 So that means if you add just two grams of sugar, half a teaspoon of sugar to your coffee or tea, uh, that can raise your blood sugar to 140 milligram for 100 ml. That means at that time, your pancreas will begin to kick in and produce that insulin to take care of your blood sugar. So you are essentially waking up your stomach, your liver, your pancreas and whole body. So that's why if you do the math and then think of what actually happens then it makes sense to understand that even that tea or coffee with half a teaspoon of sugar or a little bit of cream is breaking your fast
5: what about if it's just a black coffee sachin i just want to dig a little <laughs> deeper here let's say i let's just say i love co- i to be honest my morning coffee um I don't always have a double espresso. Sometimes I have a macchiato. There's a little bit of oat milk or something in there. So I understand that's probably going to throw you out of a fast. but let's just say it's a double espresso. Um, what do you think about that? Are we including that or are we taking that out?
6: Yeah, I mean, as I say, the thing is, you know, you are a very healthy, uh, fit person. And um, a lot of us who are thinking about this black coffee thing, we are really healthy and fit. I'm talking about people who really need the fasting and they just cannot live. They think there are a lot of people who think that, hey, having tea with a if are in the UK or in India and in many parts of the, country, the world, they will think that having a cup of tea with a uh, with, uh, biscuit is not breaking my fast. In fact, when we interview people, when is your breakfast time, people will say, ah, eat at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning and then if we ask well after you wake up what do you eat or drink then they'll say that i have a cup of tea with milk
0: mm-hmm.
6: and with um, biscuit or something so we are talking about those people and they have to kind of understand what is breaking the breaking the fast mm-hmm. and for a lot of us having a having a double espresso is actually not kicking our uh, pancreas to high gear to produce insulin and that as i said uh it, may not break our fast, Um, We will continue our fast.
5: I wanna come to um, blood glucose and and how time-restricted eating um, can be affecting various aspects of our health, particularly if we have sort of um, metabolic dysfunction or poor metabolic health. But while, while we're talking about healthy folks here, if someone is, let's say lean, um, from a, a physiological point of view, all of their kind of biomarkers or risk factors are under control. Is there a benefit from eating within a, a shortened window? Um, would they be getting any benefit from time restricted eating at all?
6: Yeah, so there are a lot of people who complain about their sleep. So what we have what you are seeing is um, both in animal studies and human studies, the people who do eight to ten hours time restricted eating, uh, the first thing they mention is they sleep much better. Um, and we don't understand the mechanism, but we are seeing that the sleep improves. Another thing that we also see is a uh, lot of people who believe they're healthy, they don't have any metabolic syndrome, they don't have any metabolic disease, they might have acid reflux, they might, might have bloating, they have, might have indigestion once in a while, and that reduces their productivity. And what we are also seeing is all of these uh, digestive issues may come uh, much better. So, for example, personally, I used to have acid reflux and, um, you know, many acid reflux medications would be by my bedside and I would lose sleep sometimes. And after I started time-restricted eating 10, 12 years ago, I haven't gone to, uh, I haven't bought any new <laughs> acid reflux med- meds mm-hmm. uh, and I haven't used then. So this is one example where people actually will benefit. And second and another thing is, you know, in long term, we all are healthy, we may be all healthy now. But if you think of what is what is our health goal, I used to say that if you can be healthy and without medication till your kids go to college or until you hit 50. That's actually a lofty goal, and you cannot do that unless you start planning very early. So time-restricted editing is almost like preparing for your retirement savings. It starts right. the day you start working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From that day, you start mm-hmm. saving. So similarly, to add those extra decade or decades of healthy life, um, people who are healthy, they should actually start doing this.
5: Yeah. When, when you break it down that way, it makes my question look a little silly because it would be like saying, should we eat a healthy diet today if we're otherwise healthy? Or should we just wait until we have, have disease and then think about it? Um, so I think you answered that well. Thank you. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. At a time where nutrition can seem extremely confusing and unsettled, Dr. Jill Carvalho provides a steady voice, helping people fact-check claims using a simple science-based framework. Here Dr. Carvalho walks us through how to think about nutrition science, so we can be better at working out who's sharing reliable information. We talk about different types of evidence, anecdotes, mechanistic studies, studies looking at health outcomes, and the importance of understanding the evidence hierarchy when evaluating the strength of a particular claim.
9: People who have a scientific training and a a system of critical thinking are much less prone to confusion when when exposed to certain types of content. Like if you or I watch a video by somebody just making outlandish claims on nutrition, it's much harder to confuse you or me. And that's not because we are smarter. It's It's not even because we have a scientific background per se. It's that we have a certain way of thinking that breaks down the arguments that are being made and then a certain a posteriori process of fact checking. And so I've been thinking about this for a long time. How can we break this down and distill the essential principles so that anybody without scientific training can do this and can hit the key buttons Mm -hmm. without having to spend, you know, years uh, digging and reading every paper on earth. So this simple system that we came up with uh, we call it the, the three P's of fact checking or the three P's of uh, information, cl- clarity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the first B stands for proof. And that's kind of self-explanatory. But basically, it's a very important realization that the burden of proof is with the person making the claim. Crucial. People contact me every day with videos or blogs or Posts that they say they're very confused by, and a lot of times mm. it's just a claim with no mm. evidence to back it up,
5: right, do you have an example of 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 some sort of claim that could be made uh, that, that uh, is related to this
9: yeah, I mean this happens all ten times a day, so from lectins will kill you so you shouldn't eat beans to um Whole grains are toxic because of something that happens in the gut, to, um, you know, stuff with the vaccines and, and, the, and the pandemic and COVID. Uh, you know, don't, don't take the vaccine because it will increase your risk of getting sick. It will spread. It's the, the vaccinated people that are spreading the disease. There are, there are countless examples of claims that are made that confuse people mm. that don't even have, that are unaccompanied by evidence. Mm -hmm. And so this first step of proof is just that mindset shift of a claim without evidence. I mean, I might as well be reading Harry Potter, right? It's, it's like talking Mm -hmm. about my favorite color. It's like sitting there and going, my favorite color is blue. Cool. Mine is green, whatever. Right. It has, you have to show evidence. It's not on the person receiving the, the message to then go, go fact check what you're saying just to find out if, if it's evidence based or not. Um, so, even though this sounds very obvious, it, the truth is it disqualifies automatic DQ on like 90% of the content out there that seems very confusing to people. So, to make this clearer, what does proof look like? Normally it's going to be a peer-reviewed study in a medical journal. Not always. If you're if you're if you're citing a statistic for example, right? It could be a reputable website, it could be a poll, it could be a sti- uh, some sort of the uh, some source of, of that of that number, that's mm-hmm. that. Uh, but but most of the time, it's going to be a published, peer-reviewed source. Those aren't perfect, as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's where the other, the, the rest of the piece come in. But it's a start. It's reliable. It's a we're in the we're in a terrain where we can start working. We, we can start talking about it. We can start the conversation. Conversely, some things that are often brought up to to validate these claims that are not proof. Anecdotes are not proof. Mm-hmm. You know, my. I stopped eating food, X, Y, Z, and I now feel better. I, am my health improved. That's not proof. We can go into the whys, but there's a lot of factors around anecdotes.
3: Mm-hmm.
9: All the confounders, like there's a many, many things that usually many variables. There's no way to control for those variables. There's placebo effect. There's a thousand thing, reasons why mm-hmm. an anecdote is not a compelling. Uh, it doesn't mean the anecdote is irrelevant for mm-hmm. for the person experiencing it.
5: Can we pause on that for one, yeah. one second? You mentioned there there's no way of controlling for variables. Can you just break that down? I think that's a, a really important point for people to understand when it comes to anecdotes.
9: Yeah, most of the time when somebody tries to, to make a point that they eliminated a certain food, this happens all the time on social media, you'll post a study uh, showing benefit or showing harm of certain food and somebody will disagree and say, well, actually, in my experience, I eliminated that food and I felt better. Or I eliminated that food and I, I added that food and I felt worse. And the problem with that, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It could be right. But there's a, there's a few problems. One is that it doesn't necessarily reflect what happens to the majority of people. If I'm allergic to strawberries, I could have a really bad reaction to them. It doesn't mean that they're harmful for humans. So we have to be very careful with the extrapolation, right? The anecdote could be correct and yet not be informative for the majority of people.
7: Mm-hmm.
9: The second problem is the confounders. Normally, people are talking about a change, a dietary change that happened over medium to long term. But there were a number of changes happening in that person's life. They changed a lot of other things around their diet. They changed maybe their their exercise. They changed, uh, you know, stress levels. All of these things. uh, The problem is... When you do, when you run a, a scientific experiment, you're trying to isolate the variable, meaning you're trying to keep all the other factors as constant as you can. With the anecdote, by definition, you can't do that. You can't isolate mm-hmm. the variable so that you can have reasonable, um, a reasonable basis to infer causality, right? To infer that there's cause and effect between that variable and something else. I can give you a, a concrete example that it happens all the time. Uh, when we post uh, a study showing benefit of liquid vegetable oil, there's now this, 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 uh, this huge movement of oil is, is harmful, it's and toxic. T- some people refer to it as seed oil, basically liquid vegetable oils, non, not, not olive oil, but all the others, sesame oil, mm-hmm. canola. sour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So every time I or one of us posts a study showing some benefit of these oils, Somebody will pop up and say, well, actually I removed seed oils from my diet and my health is much better now. And usually when you dig into that and ask ask follow-up questions, what they did was they removed ultra-processed foods, junk foods, right? They lost weight, their their health improved, and then they back-rationalized that because uh, seed oils are a common component of many of these foods, then they ascribed kind of arbitrarily the blame on that nutrient. I don't think we need need to spend too much time uh, uh, debunking that. I think most people see through that argument. And if you don't, you could just flip it to a food that you don't care about, that you have no emotional feeling stores and you will immediately see the problem, right? You could, you could just as, as well hypothesize that it was protein because protein is included in most ultra processed foods or some mineral that is in most ultra processed foods or Mm -hmm. water, which is in probably a hundred percent of ultra processed foods, right? So it's, a logical leap from a constellation of changes to pointing to one change often coming from information that people are receiving from podcasts or from, from blogs or, Mm -hmm. and so that they then fuse their experience with these ideas that they're getting. And they arbitrarily focus on one element among 300 elements that change, right? So it's, it doesn't mean it's wrong it's just very unreliable a heuristic process very confusing does that make sense
5: yeah cool so you were listing off what what is proof and you were you were essentially reeling off things that are not technically proof and you were sort of working towards what what is proof right. if we're saying that that first p is okay someone's made a claim what is the proof what well what do we mean by proof
9: right so yeah examples of things that will often be brought up but that are not really compelling uh, anecdotes. Uh, another one I see. This one's a little more gray. Uh, saying that a food is a, is a source of nutrient X, and this this goes both ways. Sometimes it's used to condemn a food. Sometimes it's used to recommend a food. And the the reason I say it's more gray is that this isn't necessarily. This could be evidence based, and it could be could be reasonable. But it gets used and abused. And so what I would alert to is people be cautious when that is the essence of the argument. The only, the pillar of the argument is that the food contains nutrient X. Mm. Again, it doesn't have to be wrong, but just just perk up your ears, right? Um, If there is no, the reason, I mean, we both know that the the, the type of evidence that you want to be looking for is what we call outcome evidence Mm -hmm. are the actual health effects of eating a certain food, or not eating it, or eating higher amounts versus lower amounts. This is ideally what you want to base your beliefs on in your in your choices. Mm-hmm. So, arguments like, "Well, this food contains this vitamin, or this food contains that nutrient," so we shouldn't eat it. A lot of times, those are misleading and, and can be completely completely mm-hmm. off uh, with regards mm-hmm. to the outcome evidence. So, just a little bit of caution is what I'm what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so
5: that that almost comes back to understanding uh, the sort of hierarchy of evidence, and so it, you know that th- that becomes a little reductionist if you point to a food and you say, "Look, this food is," and I'm just making this up off the top of my head, is a great source of protein, but that food is associated with increased risk of cancer or increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Your you sort of. Um, you know, missing the forest for the trees there.
9: Yeah. Great segue. That's the next P. We'll just jump to the next P, which is exactly, uh, stands for pyramid. And it's precisely referring to hierarchy of evidence. Uh, because once we go past that first barrier of proof and we have some proof shown, mm-hmm. proof is not all, evidence is not all created equal. So all studies are, do not weigh the same. And so hierarchy of evidence, if you go on Google images and you, and you Google that term, you'll see a lot of pyramids because that's usually how it's represented. And the way it usually looks is that at the bottom, the lowest rung uh, is usually mechanistic evidence. And that's things like experiments in uh, animal, in lab animals or cell culture or test tubes. So things that are not in humans, they're in surrogate systems, so-called surrogate systems. Above that, you'll have, then then we get into the human experiments, uh, not necessarily experiment, but the human data, let's call it. And the lowest rungs of that are usually either ecological data, just kind of looking at a tribe somewhere or a population somewhere. Then you have case control studies. uh, And then you get into the higher level evidence that is more robust, the the cohort studies, uh, the so-called epidemiology, even though epidemiology is a a large umbrella, but the the prospective studies. um, And then above that, you have the randomized control trials. And then above that, you have the large collections of data, the meta-analyses and the the systematic reviews. Uh, Another way, if, if this is too complicated for some people, we made a video, we wanted to make this even simpler. And so we made a video where we just showed people three bags, three bags of evidence the first bag was mechanistic studies. So basically all the, the lab stuff and animals and test tube. The second bag was the prospective studies, the epidemiology, the observational studies. And the third bag was clinical trials. And that's an order of, of, of weight, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Um, in reality, it's a, bit, it's a bit more nuanced and more complex than that. Uh, because a lot of times the questions you're asking with the epidemiology and the, the trials, it's not the same question. It's a complementary question. So really what you want to do rather than this simplistic, we see a lot of this a lot on the internet, people dismiss entire swaths of evidence and entire fields and entire experimental approaches. The reality, we look at everything, right? We look at totality mm-hmm. of evidence, but then you need a system to rank it. Some things way more than others. So that's this idea of the pyramid or the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So the, how would someone apply this to their daily life? If you see a, a surprising claim on the internet, uh, is there proof? That's the first P. Second P, you want to walk your way to the top of the pyramid or to the heavier bags. So if you're shown a study in mice, okay, that's interesting data. We don't dismiss that. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. But we ask, cool, is there anything in humans? Does it align with that? If you're shown a study in humans that is observational, a prospective study, an epidemiological study, you go, cool, interesting data. Are there any, any clinical trials on, the, on this question or a complementary question, a related question, do those things generally align? If you're shown a, a, a single clinical trial, you can ask, is there a meta-analysis of trials? Does it point in the same direction, right? So it's this idea of, of walking towards more reliable data.
5: Dr. Richard Johnson, author of Why Nature Wants Us To Be Fat, has been featured on many of the world's largest podcasts in the past few years. His research and thesis focuses primarily on the role of fructose in metabolic health. While fructose does seem to play a role, particularly in diets providing an excess of calories, something that is often overlooked is that dietary fat can also affect our metabolic health. In this clip, Dr. Johnson returned for his second appearance on The Proof, where we focused on how different types of fats affect metabolic health via liver fat and insulin resistance. Something else that that I do want to touch on is the type of fat, um, because you've mentioned a couple of times that a high fat diet has done this. Um, and there does seem to 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 be this kind of anti-polyunsaturated fat type rhetoric online. and I can't personally make a lot of sense of it. Um, and when I was looking through a lot of these trials with you, I was finding some some pretty fascinating results and there's a couple studies here I'd like to, to go through because it seems that when it comes to hepatic fat, that dif, dif, the type of fat matters a lot. And there was a, a study and I'd like to discuss with you and you, you sort of spoke about uric acid before but if there's potentially other mechanisms here at play. Um, the Bajermo uh, 2012 paper, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly but… B-J-E-R-M-O, it was a 10-week study, 67-odd participants that were abdominally obese adults and really neat. They randomized them to a high saturated fat or a high polyunsaturated fat diet and that polyunsaturated fat diet was mostly omega-6 fats, the ones that tend to get demonized the most. And the goal was weight maintenance but they did put on a little bit of weight, it was under a kilogram but over the 10 weeks. And in the saturated fat group, liver fat went up by 7% relative to baseline and in the polyunsaturated fat group, it went down by 9% relative to baseline. And these researchers were also interested in looking at inflammation and oxidative stress. And so online you'll hear quite regularly that omega-6s are, are, are bad when it comes to inflammation and oxidative stress but they found no increase in, in either of these um in the polyunsaturated fat group. And their conclusion, which I have here, was that compared with saturated fat intake, omega-6 polyunsaturated fats reduce liver fat and modestly improve metabolic status without weight loss. A high omega-6 polyunsaturated fat intake does not cause any signs of inflammation or oxidative stress. Yes,
1: I agree with you. So so let's just... uh you know, go back, you know, I, I believe fructose is really playing a big role in driving metabolic syndrome, but it works best when it's given with fat to make it, you know, works best meaning creates the most fat uh, when it's working with a high fat diet, but the type of fat really makes a difference. And um, when it comes to calories, fat is all nine calories or so per gram, but, um, But when it comes to the type of fat, it really does seem to make a difference. And saturated fat um, really seems to be the 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 worst culprit. And when you compare it to polyunsaturated fats, the saturated fat diets that I you know when I've seen this, like the study you talked about, which is a great one, the saturated fats tend to do to cause more um, a worse uh, uh, fatty liver, uh, you know. Evidence of more inflammation, you know, a greater rise in LDL cholesterol, um, all the bad things. So saturated fat tends to be worse. And and you're right, the you know there's there's some data that omega-3 fatty acids can really um, you know like help block fructose effects. And there are all these studies. I've never done one of these studies, but there are lots of studies suggesting that omega-3 is really good. And and that led to this concept that the omega-3, omega-6 ratio is really, really important. And these days, a lot of people are eating seed oils that are rich in omega-6. And so there's uh, there's all this stuff in the internet saying that the omega-6 is really uh, a big problem. But if you actually dive into the literature, there's not so much evidence that omega-6 is doing anything you know bad compared to you know other fats like saturated fat looks like it's the winner for being the the worst loser <laughs> it's saturated fat appears to be the uh, much worse than polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats like olive oil seem to be pretty healthy so my my guess is that um that you know that polyunsaturated fats are are getting a bad shake Um, and that um, omega-3s clearly look beneficial. Omega-6, you know, most studies suggest that that they're not as bad as people are saying, but saturated fats, when you you take a diet high in saturated fats, you're going to get into trouble. It's going to cause fatty liver. It's going to, you know, it's going to raise your LDL. It's going to be associated with atherosclerosis and increased risk for heart disease. Uh, So we do need to, Uh, restrict our saturated fat
5: cholesterol and heart disease boy does this topic cause a stir online probably the most thorough episode on this topic on the proof to date was with my irish friends dr alan flanagan and danny lennon of sigma nutrition we covered just about every rebuttal to the idea that high ldl cholesterol causes heart disease In this section of the conversation, we use a shipping cargo analogy to explain how triglycerides and cholesterol are transported through the body, and importantly, what causes cholesterol to become retained within the artery wall and build up as plaque, which ultimately causes a heart attack or stroke. And let me just say, if you are coming into this topic for the first time, this can feel a little bit like a new language so that's to be expected to learn more i recommend going back to the episode on youtube and watching it where there are illustrations to help explain things the way i kind of like to think about this is shipping containers you know that that Mm -hmm. analogy of like Mm -hmm. the the shipping containers kind of floating through our blood that's the lipoprotein and then on top of that is the uh, sorry the ship is is the lipoprotein and then on top of that the containers the, the freight are uh, the mm-hmm. triglycerides and the cholesterol. cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these uh, ships have this ApoB protein, mm-hmm. which makes them this kind of special class that we have said is atherogenic, mm-hmm. which uh, I guess is the kind of capacity to enter the artery wall and build up as plaque, which we'll
10: probably go into. Yeah do you agree is that a kind of yeah that's the broadest term for an atherogenic potential
5: okay so you've got these ships that have this certain protein they have this capacity to go into our artery wall and potentially build up Mm -hmm. Um, and then you've got some other ships that don't have that protein that's Mm -hmm. hdl they don't have that same sort of atherogenic potential Mm -hmm. so and and these lipoproteins are playing an important role, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're distributing fats and cholesterol into to tissues. So they're they're, they're meant to be there at some level. They're doing a, a role. And I think what's interesting is to think about that and then talk about well, what goes wrong? Right. You know, why would the body have this system in place um, that is? You know, for all intents and purposes, presumably there to actually sustain life and 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 make us healthy. Mm. Where do where do things go wrong
10: when it gets retained in the artery wall? <laughs> so so one further um, stratification that we can make that's important for the concept that we're talking about of atherogenicity is the size of the. So we've we've identified density, obviously, and importance and. The, the kind of lower the density, the more room there is, so to speak, on the ship for triglyceride and cholesterol. Um, and the expression of apoB is important because it's ultimately that apoB moiety, that apoB compound, so to speak, on the on the on the ship, <laughs> on the lipoprotein that is going to be what sticks. Like the anchor, what adheres exactly. So. That's a really good analogy because yes, ship goes into artery, so to speak, mm. and drops anchor and it's ApoB that is literally anchoring to the artery wall. And once there, there's a, a whole host of immune and inflammatory processes that will, mm. and, and oxidative processes that will result from that. But a major factor influencing which lipoproteins, which ships can get in in the first place is the size Mm -hmm. of the lipoprotein itself. And size for these compounds would be measured in kind of nanometers, and what we know is that basically any lipoprotein under about 70 to 75 nanometers in diameter is small enough to get into the artery. Any compound under that, and any, any lipoprotein over that size is actually too large. So when we eat food and we digest the dietary fat in that meal, that dietary fat is absorbed at first into these very large particles known as chylomicrons. Mm-hmm. They're too large to penetrate the artery. So they so chylomicrons are not atherogenic. But what can happen is, as the body starts to break down, as enzymes start to break down the triglyceride, the fat that we've consumed in the diet that's been packaged into these really large, fluffy, buoyant lipoproteins gets broken down, you end up with progressively less triglyceride, and then as a proportion, more Mm -hmm. more cholesterol there. So it creates what are known as chylomicron remnants those remnants can be atherogenic because their size has been, they've been depleted. Mm-hmm. And then we have VLDL, very low density glycoprotein, which is synthesized in the liver. Mm-hmm. So the chylomicrons are the exogenous pathway of mm-hmm. triglyceride intake, dietary fat. And then VLDL can be synthesized in the liver mm-hmm. if the liver is having to upregulate production of new fat um, from an overconsumption of calories or from fat being dropped to the liver from diet and these kind of things. So VLDL in its... Exists in kind of two subclasses, VLDL one and two. VLDL one is just large enough again not to necess- not to be able to penetrate, but VLDL two, right. smaller VLDL, can. So we so we have smaller VLDL. We have IDL, mm. chylomicron remnants, LDL itself, LP little a, and all of these fit both the classification of expressing. ApoB, mm-hmm. except for LP little a, but that's that's just a technicality we can avoid, and the size, and between the two of them, they're able to not just get into the arterial intima, and then ApoB, as the analogy of the mm-hmm. anchor, is is what then sticks right. and adheres okay. to that artery wall, and then the processes okay. begin. Right, so you have these different ships, they're they're dropping off at
5: certain ports, some of these triglycerides and and, and cholesterol, some of the containers are going off and at a certain point that ship, the size is is now um, a size that enables it to enter into the artery wall and Mm -hmm. can drop its anchor and get stuck. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so… Something I think that often comes up here is that what I what I would be interested in sort of understanding and, and speaking about is is that sort of process of these particles going into the artery wall. I think transcytosis is the term mm-hmm. that that's often used. Is that normal? And does does sort of do these particles flow in and out, and that's um, completely fine and healthy? Um, or is that pathogenic in and of itself? Because often what I hear is from the counterpoint is that, well, actually it's it's not these particles that are kind of going in there and causing the damage. The only time that they would be retained is if there is already some sort of damage there and people point to hypertension or smoking um or seed oils so i'm, I'm kind of interested in trying to delineate mm. um that what is actually causing the anchor to to get dropped and the cholesterol to get retained
10: did that so the, make sense yeah it did so the 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 two researchers that that kind of gave us one of the one of probably the, the greatest breakthroughs in this whole story over the last century goldstein and brown um, won a Nobel Prize for it, discovered the LDL receptor in the eighties, and and that that has that has from there just accelerated almost everything we know, not just about these processes that we're discussing, but but even how to intervene to treat atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And in in one of their papers, they they had this really nice analogy where they they called cholesterol and, and LDL, a Janus-faced molecule, you know, Janus, the, the, the two-faced god, right? <laughs> and what they meant by that was, we have a, a need for cholesterol in the body, and we have these lipoproteins, but the, the, the very properties of cholesterol, and indeed of fats in the body, fats and water don't mix. Someone can go and pour olive oil in their glass of water Mm -hmm. right now and they'll see what we're talking about. So, we need compounds and cholesterol itself is quite this waxy kind of molecule. Again, not particularly good if you're a a circulatory body that Mm -hmm. has blood and plasma and fluid essentially. We need these compounds to be able to transport beneficial material to our cells and to our tissues in order to function. The problem is that the properties from a kind of chemical perspective or are uh, that 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 make these compounds what they are paradoxically is also what can make them deadly if they get to the wrong place and the wrong place in this case is 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 into our artery wall and so we clearly have evolved a kind of threshold at which there is sufficient capacity in the body to have these compounds uh, on the the ship, so to speak, to have enough in circulation for meeting our physiological requirements and a range of um, levels in the body at which we can have these compounds in the circulation where they'll be able to do their job drop the raw material that we need into, into port, so to speak, get it to the tissues that require it. And this process can, can go, we can forward transport cholesterol and other material to cells. We can bring it back and recycle it within a certain threshold. We've, we've clearly evolved the capacity to have those functions actually work without causing any additional, um, stress or or damage Mm -hmm. to the body. Over certain thresholds is when we get into a situation where there is simply too much, so to speak, cargo uh, and too many ships. Mm-hmm. And there is an inability at that point for the, 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 the requirements for our cells for cholesterol specifically are very low. We have the capacity to synthesize that cholesterol in the body endogenously. We do require it for really important functions, but the actual level required mm. for optimal function and, and the level required during maximal phases of growth in the human body are very small. What is that? Like, give us a number. About 30 milligrams mm. per deciliter. Right. And, and we know that because that's that's what Goldstein and Brown looked at in kind of like infant development. So
5: is that similar to um, primates? like so if you if you were to look at at animals, um, and I think I've looked at some of this this research, but um, if I'm correct, they don't tend to get atherosclerosis and they have much lower level. I mean in experiments, you can give them atherosclerosis, but in the in the wild, do,
10: do you know what their kind of level of LDL cholesterol so is? So any, any other mammals that have been looked at, any other primates that have been looked at, n- none of these species or, or indeed like um, other animal models that have been looked at come anywhere near to expressing the levels of lipoproteins and cholesterol that modern human, mm-hmm. particularly Western industrialized populations exhibit. Mm-hmm. Um... And they don't develop atherosclerosis. Uh, and we have, you know, evidence not just from, you know, kind of hunter-gatherer, quote-unquote, populations uh, who, who don't develop atherosclerosis. Um, there are some myths that have emerged even within that, particularly mm-hmm. focused on um, indigenous Inuit cultures in the Arctic. Uh, that's just, uh, you know, a myth, this idea that they do not develop coronary artery disease is, is is not the case at all it was based on some shoddy assumptions in the 1970s that really haven't held true um, beyond that um, so so really there, there's 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 very little evidence of atherosclerosis developing in any of these other in other non-human primates uh, who have obviously much le- lower levels of cholesterol in other animal species. Um, the, a lot of these animal models are, are actually how we know the importance of the LDL cholesterol uh, receptor, of the, of the, of the um, mm-hmm. LDL receptor generally. So, at that level, I'd say
5: um, 30 milligrams per deciliter, mm-hmm. let's say in a human. Um, and I think there are uh, a P- the PISA study, I think is one study I've looked at that kind of looked at this and um, was looking at levels of subclinical atherosclerosis in different. Um, uh, people with different levels of, of cholesterol in mm. that paper. I think it was at forty or fifty milligrams per deciliter. Those were the only people that didn't have any subclinical atherosclerosis. Um, but just to kind of summarize what you're saying is, if atherosclerosis is not inevitable, mm-hmm. so if if you if you have uh, an LDL cholesterol level of say 30, 40 milligrams per deciliter your entire mm-hmm. life, based on the evidence um, that's out there, you're saying that that, that person you would not develop, develop atherosclerosis. Mm-hmm. Right, and is that actually, I mean, clearly there are some papers looking at it where people do have that level, but is that is that a level, 30, 40 is very low, is that actually something you think people can achieve without pharmaceutical intervention?
10: Um, in the modern context, probably not. But, you know, again, a lot of a lot of a lot of um unacculturated populations don't necessarily have cholesterol, LDL cholesterol that low or total cholesterol that low, you know. So so it seems that in otherwise healthy individuals that the threshold appears to be around eighty milligrams mm-hmm. per deciliter. That seems to be uh the range up to that point where again, in otherwise healthy individuals, atherosclerosis doesn't progress Mm -hmm. at thresholds under that. Um, And so, and from a number of studies that have looked at actual regression of plaque in the arteries from achieving certain targets in primary prevention, that's now the the delineation for targets to treat. So in, in primary prevention, the aim is to get people's LDL cholesterol to 70 milligrams per deciliter or less, In secondary prevention, in people who've already had a coronary event or a cardiovascular event, they're high risk. They're already on likely a maximally tolerated statin. Mm -hmm. The aim is to further use additional pharmacotherapies, specifically now real enthusiasm for PCSK9 inhibitors, to get that LDL cholesterol down to less than 30 milligrams per deciliter Mm -hmm. in order to fully kind of rule out almost the, the, the risk of of a second event but you know again in high-risk individuals other events Mm. still occur okay um but yeah they're they're the two kind of distinctions we can make now in terms of primary and secondary prevention and kind of targets to to treat too fun fact do
5: you know who came up with the glycemic index dr david jenkins and colleagues back in 1991 out of canada a true nutrition giant Dr. Jenkins joined us in the middle of 2022 to share insight into another facet of his extensive research career, the dietary portfolio. A panel of foods that have cholesterol lowering properties that he and his colleagues have shown in clinical intervention trials can, when stacked together, lower LDL cholesterol levels by approximately 30%, equivalent to a low dose statin. In these studies, when you're getting people, I mean, metabolic study, you're sort of just giving the food to them. But in the free living ones, how are you kind of explaining the diet portfolio? Or if you were, if someone came to you today and said, I'd love to do this, how, how do you explain to them, you know, the foods that they're going to be adding to their plate? What does that look like?
11: Well, that's what, what what's, what's the eating plan, as it were? Yes. <clears throat> well, I mean, things like. Oat bran is, is an excellent source of viscous fibre. Um, uh, soy milk is um, has got soy protein in it, um, and um, so for breakfast, why not have some oat bran with soy milk, and then why not some berries, some fruit, which are also low glycemic index and have a lot of other nutrient properties. So have some have some berries on some some oatmeal with uh, with soy milk. And that that would be useful as part of a breakfast, if you like. And quite honestly, um, certainly the use of things like tofu, and certainly where we 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 include um, the other sort of plant-based protein, soy, soy especially protein, and legumes in general foods. Right. We we include those in the diet, so you could have. Bean stews as as, as lunch, um, you could have uh, you can have sort of tofu and uh, and and uh, stir fried vegetables uh, for dinner. These are the sorts of ways way that one would change the the eating pattern that you would eat, and you can have snacks with with nuts, um, and uh, you can have some plant sterile on the on the bread that you're you're eating with your meals, and the breads themselves. We would, we would suggest, and we, we did actually provide it, we provided um, oat bran bread and um, it was held together to some extent by a little psyllium, which is a viscous fibre. You don't have to put much in, but that makes a very good, sort of fairly dense whole-grain whole, whole grain bread so that um, those two can be eaten and they will lower serum cholesterol in addition. So these sorts of foods... we constructed some foods but it's become much easier to recommend these diets as we've seen um, different types of foods that are manufactured foods um, on the market that are healthy. Now not all, all foods um, are as measurably healthy as we would like but um, we think they set people in the right direction so that's what we're trying to do <clears throat> and we do actually rely quite a lot on things like tofu and tempeh and these sorts of foods because we think they're valuable even though soy has been getting a bad rap for the wrong mm. reason.
5: Tell me about soy quickly. So what what is it about soy, soy that was, uh, made it soy, special? Everyone was worried. It was
11: so, soy's got a 7S um, globulin fraction uh, which... S- as a surgery in Italy um, has shown, uh, has an inhibitory effect. It's small peptides have an in- inhibitory effect on cholesterol biosynthesis in the liver. Right. That seems to be one of the effects they have. Uh, they do seem to, overall, whatever the mechanism, lower serum cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Even when you give it in a balanced diet, uh, it certainly has some lowering potential. It's not big. I mean, it's. Uh, Is maybe three, four, five percent. So it's not the big one on the market. But on the other hand, you've also got the displacement value you were talking about. So what is the food that it's displacing? And that would have tended to raise the cholesterol by about the same amount. So it actually has it can those sort of foods can make a significant Mm. difference in terms Mm. of cholesterol reduction.
5: Mm. And as you Said before, which I think is a really important point is that sometimes you can look at a study and look at a specific food and its effect on say cholesterol um, and you might think well the magnitude of that is not huge but that's on its own and when you stack these things on top of each other Mm -hmm. within a dietary pattern, as you say, then um, all of a sudden you can get um, quite a a large shift in a biomarker, in this case cholesterol which could be very meaningful for your um, health. David, when when you were sort of creating the eating plan and 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 uh, helping folks in the studies or, or, or just patients in general understand what their kind of goals were here, were you explaining it as you kind of just did before where you're saying, look, here's some breakfast, lunch and dinner ideas, these are foods that we'd like you to kind of eat more of and you're pointing to say for example soy and nuts and seeds and, and oats and eggplant. Um, or were there were there any specific targets where you were like we want you to eat this much?
11: You're quite right. There are targets, and and we 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 the dietitians uh, will put out a, a target. Uh, for what the patients on the diets actually were expected to eat per day, how much viscous fibre, how much soy protein, or, or, or other legume proteins, um, mm. how what, what weight of nuts they were meant to have, etc. So these were actually pre-specified. People stuck to them about 50 percent. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and I think, and I think as we've gone forward. We've thought it's more important to be more positive about the, rather than saying what you shouldn't eat. Um, yeah. It seems to be better to say, look, why don't you have sort of uh, two ounces of oats a day, or whatever a day? Why don't you have? Um, uh, why don't you have some some tofu? Why don't you have sort of sort of the equivalent of of. Uh, 14, 15, 20 grams of protein from tofu a day or more. Um, see how much more you want to eat. If you want to eat less, then we would suggest that you probably had a little bit more plant sterile on your bread because you can, you can mix your, your portfolio because it is it is literally a portfolio. You can mix it so that it, it becomes the profile of the sorts of foods that you like. Um, and you take those foods... Um, and we do that by trial and error as one goes along. Um, and patients themselves are very good at finding out what they like. And then when we look at the diet history, with the, their diet history, we can say, well, can you model That's why I say I don't want to give people just a sort of straight pattern because I think it may not help if I to say, look, well, you really ought to have about 20 or 30 grams of of. Um, of legume protein a day, they say, what the hell's that? (laughs) Um, So one has to to look at what they've got. Say, look, why don't you have some beans, peas and lentils? Have you tried, um, if if you tried tofu? Um, No, never tried tofu. Well, look, I suggest you go out to a Chinese restaurant and actually see what they do with tofu, see how you like it. You know, there's a lot of education that goes on. I think one's going to do this thing. Um, satisfactorily so we do we for a time we did have one very good restaurant that used to put on meals for all our patients so we we could just send them off there have a meal learn about the food then go and take the diet Mm.
5: yeah well i I think um you know of course social media has its good parts and bad parts but i'd say one of the the really positive things is there's a lot more recipes that are very accessible and there's a lot of people putting up content showing how to use a food like tofu and how to make it actually enjoyable. Um, But I really like what you're emphasizing here that, um, you know, any step in that direction is going to be good and even if you don't do this perfectly, you can still get some, some benefits.
11: Absolutely, and you can keep on building.
5: Yeah, I came across a chart and I'm not sure if your group created it or someone created it. Um, after looking at your studies, but it was a, it's a, it's a chart that kind of summarizes all of this and shows the different um, characteristics of the portfolio diet, and then has like a, a sort of percentage LDL reduction you could expect to get from each of those. Um, yes,
11: yeah, I think, I think it came from your
5: group, and. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll share that with you, and if it did come from your group, I'll put that into the show notes um, okay. for for Good. folks to to look at a little further.
11: Well, I have to say that my my daughters, my daughters also brought out. A, I've just brought out a cookbook by by. by I'm, I, this is a conflict of interest. I'm telling you, so I declare to the audience that this is my. These are my daughters, therefore I am highly conflicted in in being positive about it. I I I. I and I will obviously say, of course I'm positive and you'll have to just believe that I'm not lying. But anyway, um, I think it's a good book. And they spent a lot of time, spent a year putting it together. So there is a, a, a dietary portfolio book brought out by Academic Press, interestingly. So Elsevier okay. put it out under yeah. Academic Press. And um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's not a cookbook. It's a sort of dietary book explaining what the portfolio diet is about. Um, and uh, giving a lot of recipes. So it might be useful well, for some
5: people. When it comes to microbiome research, doctors David and Erica Sonnenberg of Stanford University are considered to be the top of the field, continually publishing research that expands upon our understanding of the relationship between the food we eat and the health of the microorganisms that take up residence in our gut. As this clip from my episode with the Sonnenbergs sets up a slew of memorable moments focused on gut health, Let's start right at the beginning. What is the microbiome?
0: For us, we use the term microbiome and microbiota interchangeably. And what we're referring to is the collection of bacteria, microbes that live inside our digestive system. And so microbes actually colonize the entirety of our digestive system in our mouth all the way through to our colon, the very end of our colon. But usually when people refer to the gut microbiome, they're talking about the community of microbes that lives in our large intestine, or colon. And that's because that's where the majority of these bacteria live. So even though we have microbes in our um, stomach and our small intestine, um, most of the work, scientific work has been done on the microbes that live in our colon.
5: So tell me about the relationship between the, the bacteria in the, in the colon and our own physiology. I know growing up as a kid, I used to hear bacteria and I thought, Ooh, that's a germ. You know, we don't want that. And so I'd love to understand a bit more about this relationship. And, and also this may seem like a silly question, but what would happen if we didn't have microbes? I
0: think, you know, like you, I grew up also thinking about bacterias, germs. I mean, you get sick and you take antibiotics, that's supposed to kill bacteria, right? So we're all sort of grow up thinking that bacteria are bad things, but really, you know, most microbes are in fact uh, either beneficial or benign, don't really do anything. It's a small percentage of microbes that actually cause disease, but of course, they get a lot of attention because of the problems they cause. But really, the, the human body is not just a collection of human cells. We're actually a composite organism. We have our human cells, but we're also host to a huge number of microbial cells as well. And so this ecosystem between our human cells and our microbial cells is, you know, really an, a fascinating um, field of study to understand how these two parts of our biology, our microbial half and our human half work together um, and how these two halves can, um, we can a- adjust, you know, how they're functioning so that each side functions better and leads to better health.
3: And just to add to that, you know, I think this question of like what what would it look like to not have a microbiota or to not have any microbes, Um, You know, we have to consume food. Food has to pass through our digestive tract. And um, of course, until recently, it wasn't possible to eat sterilized food. So microbes are everywhere. And so um, just by virtue of the fact that we're consuming, you know, things in the environment, these foods... We're going to be consuming bacteria, and so that means the bacteria can um, transit our digestive tract. Ones that are adapted to take up residence there can start to live there, and it would just take an overwhelming immune response, so much energy to put into the immune system to try to cleanse this, to cleanse our digestive tract and keep it keep it sterile. That you know, over evolutionary time, we've worked on this relationship where we can have microbes there that. By and large, don't cause disease and help exclude many of the pathogens that do cause disease. And so I think the you know, one way to think about this is over evolutionary time, we have cultivated a relationship with a group of microbes that can, um, on the one hand, exclude pathogens, take up the niche space in our gut and kind of occupy it. So they provide competition for the bad guys. And then the beauty added on top of that is these microbes um, can do all sorts of other wonderful things for us, like um, help us digest food and um, you know, synthesize molecules that um, appear to be important for our health. And you know, then and a lot of other things that have happened, Um, you know, over the course of evolution, where we've actually become reliant upon the signals in, you know, that our microbes produce for different uh, aspects of development and metabolism.
5: So another kind of very basic question uh, from me here, and excuse me if this is, again, a a silly one, but I'm wondering, we talk about bacteria helping us digest parts of our food and, and the indigestible components of carbohydrate in particular uh, fiber. Why is it that, that we have outsourced that? Why can't our own cells perform that function?
0: Yeah, I mean that's a great question. If you, if you look at the capacity for degrading complex carbohydrates that the microbiome encodes, it's just massive. It's, you know, tens of thousands of genes compared to just a handful of genes that we encode. So it would be a pretty big endeavor on our human genomes part to try to encode all of this. The other thing um, advantage to having, you know, it not encoded within the human genome is because, you know, you're sort of stuck with your human genome that you have at conception. Um, your microbiome is actually adaptable to your environment. So your microbiome can more closely match the carbohydrate environment of your food. So for example, say you grow up in Japan and you eat a lot of seaweed, we know that there are microbes that are able to degrade these complex carbohydrates found in seaweed. So if you just pick up one of those microbes, now you're able to use that carbohydrate source as as a nutrient source for you. But if you grow up in another part of the world where seaweed isn't part of your diet, your human genome doesn't have to worry about it. You just don't pick up a microbe that encodes that. You instead pick up microbes that encode um, the degradation of the carbohydrates that, that match the diet mm-hmm. that you're eating. So it, it does provide this advantage of, of having you know sort of a a, a bespoke microbiome or a bespoke capability to degrade the food source that you are actually consuming at that time.
3: And if you grow up in the US and you move to Japan, you can potentially pick yeah. up a microbe that helps you degrade a local food that you might start eating partway through your life. So it is this really malleable component of our biology that can um, adapt to aspects of our diet. Now, that that presents a vulnerability to this um, malleability, and that uh, microbiota can um, deteriorate and change potentially in ways that are not beneficial to our health. We can talk more about that, but um, but it does represent an aspect of our biology that is um, malleable and therefore advantageous in certain. Sure.
5: Yeah. I mean, there's hope in that, right? There's opportunity. To, to kind of modulate it and, and restore it, which is of course what a lot of your work is centered on. In 2021, Professor Christopher Gardner teamed up with the Sonnenberg Lab at Stanford to conduct a study comparing fiber to fermented foods with a particular focus on how each affects microbiome diversity and inflammation. There were some interesting findings from this trial, often misrepresented online. Here we learn about them from the investigators themselves you run this study of the four week kind of, uh, uh, run in period. And then you have uh, 10 weeks, these two different arms. One group is upping their fiber as Dr. Gardner explained the other groups, adding these six serves of fermented foods to their diet. You're measuring, you're taking blood samples. There are stool samples. You're looking at, uh, inflammation and the diversity of the microbiome. What do you see?
3: Well, and just to clarify the design. So we had a, a three week baseline period where the participants didn't do anything. There was a four week ramp period and then a six week maintenance period. So the, that total intervention okay. time, including the ramp is 10 weeks. And then there was a four week kind of washout, choose your own kind of, you know, they can, they can stop or they could continue the food as they liked it. They, and traditionally in these sorts of studies, there's a washout where you stop treatment, but Christopher wisely refuses to make people go back to a, a crappy diet after teaching them how to eat good food. And, um, so we let people choose whatever they want at the end of the, for the, for the washout period. Um, yeah, so we can, we collected blood and stool longitudinally over that in, entire time. And the, you know, the very simple analysis here is just to ask the question of what, what do these participants look like at baseline? What do they look like at the end of the study? And is there a change that's happened across the cohort and the, um, really, big signal that was um, very impressive was uh, there were two really for the fermented food group One was an increase in microbiome diversity. So these people um, somehow increased the number of microbial bacterial species in their gut microbiome, and many markers of inflammation decreased over that same time. And in fact, even if we look at intermediate time points, um, so not just the beginning and end, but the intermediate ones as they were progressing, we see a, a gradual increase in diversity over the fermented food intervention and a gradual decrease. In these inflammatory markers, so it's it's kind of the um, the uh, result that you would hope to see Mm. for a healthy dietary intervention in a, um, in, you know, in a Western cohort, I will say that, you know, my hypothesis, and I think much of the field to this point would hypothesize based on work that's been done in, in animal models and so forth, that that sort of signal would be expected in the high fiber group, Mm. not the high fermented food group, because fiber is, you know, what Mm -hmm. we're missing in our diet, in the Western diet, Bringing it back should be able. Should allow for recruitment of new microbes. Should allow for a bunch of fermentation and products of these microbes to go in and dampen inflammation. So we saw the signal that we expected. It was just not in the intervention arm that we expected. Mm-hmm. So in fact, that was Simon.
12: It. He he wrote me an email and he said, "Are you, are you sure you got the groups right? Can you go back and tell me? <laughs> you know, we've been blinded to this this whole time. A and B." Is it really BNA? Cause I, I think mm-hmm. you might've mixed those up when you sent them to me. Justin, would you add to this? I think one of the critical points is that um, in Justin's lab, they did a very thorough job Simon, of going out and purchasing some of the same products and the same brand names that the participants were choosing. Cause we did make recommendations and you might expect that the microbes that were in those foods mm-hmm. would appear in your gut, but really the increase in diversity that we saw was far beyond those specific microbes, Justin, you want to take that
3: yeah and and just to um add to that, you know there were some of the microbes you know I think something like five percent of the new species that appeared were from the fermented food, so that confirmed that we didn't you know there wasn't any mislabeling mm-hmm. of the arms that occurred It really <laughs> confirmed that this was the fermented food group, and that many of the species came from from somewhere else on that point uh, and
5: my understanding was probiotic supplements, for example, when you take them, those probiotics may have sort of transient effects in the body, but they don't stick necessarily. Uh, and I may be completely wrong there. Um, are you are you sort of saying that some of the bacteria in the fermented foods seem to take up residence within the the microbiome? Or is that something that you would need to kind of test over a longer period of time to determine?
3: Yeah, we'd probably need to test that over a longer period of time. There there was um, a decrease in those species through the washout period, but again, some of these people were still consuming fermented foods. Most of them were consuming some. And so it's hard to know whether that signal was stable colonization versus additional fermented food microbes that were running through. There is, you know, it's interesting. Probiotics um, come in, you know, different flavors. There, There are some probiotic bacteria that were originated in fermented foods and therefore are for instance milk adapted, many of the you know lactobacillus species, for instance. There are other probiotics that originated in infant feces, infant stool, many of the bifidobacterial probiotics and those were used um, decades ago to cure diarrhea, in infants that were suffering from diarrhea and they've been used for so long and have such a great safety profile. They now are allowable as probiotic supplements, even though they're derived from the human GI tract. And there are actually even some lactobacillus that were originally derived from the human GI tract. So the, the, um, origin of the probiotics matters because in some studies, if you take a, um, fermented, um, Uh, a milk fermented food adapted strain, it most likely will not take up residence in your gut because it's not adapted for your gut. Mm -hmm. But in trials that have been done with, for instance, bifidobacteria that are gut adapted, the bifidobacteria will take up permanent residence Mm -hmm. if there's an open niche, if that strain doesn't already exist in the gut microbiota. So quite often in these studies, you'll see um, uh, there's a really beautiful study from Jens Walters group showing that um, about half the people stably engraft the probiotic strain and half Mm -hmm. of them don't. Half of them, it just washes through and disappears. And so, um, so anyway, some of these probiotic strains can stably engraft in our study, um, we think that these are probably mostly just transiently appearing and disappearing, but the vast majority of the diversity are gut resident strains, probably not originating from the fermented foods. We don't know exactly where they're coming from.
5: Okay. We might we might come back to that point around uh, probiotics and uh, microbiome testing a little later, if we talk about personalized nutrition and some of the, the tests that are uh, or the toolkits that are becoming available, uh, on this fermented food group. Um, what was the average consumption that sort of six level target? Is that where subjects got to, was there any difference that you saw perhaps in subjects that consumed less serves on average per day compared to those that consumed more, or was there, any information around particular fermented foods that seem to have a a sort of unique effect on the microbiome.
12: So it was less, uh, you know, in terms of dose, the sample size wasn't large enough to see a dose effect, but as, as I was trying to explain earlier, what if you really hated kimchi? Does that mean you couldn't be in the study? What if you really wouldn't weren't willing to drink kombucha? And so they could get their sixers a day any way they wanted. And in fact, some people really um, preferred the yogurt and some people bought these gut shots that they were taking that originally weren't in our list, but that qualified. And when Justin and the group analyzed the data, there were some specifically larger contributions from some of the foods. So Justin take that back.
3: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it it was, um, Uh, you know, the, by design, this study was meant to not test individual fermented foods. It was just to get people eating diverse mixture of fermented foods, but we could go back and see if there were, you know, larger effects, for instance, on gut microbiome diversity of people that ate more yogurt or ate more, drank more kombucha. And so in doing that analysis, it really looks like, um, the, you know, the biggest impact in our study, um, was, um, yogurt followed by, uh, actually a fermented vegetable brine drink that is commercially called gut shots. It's basically mm-hmm. just the, the, you know, liquid, salty liquid from, you know, fermenting sauerkraut. It's interesting and notable that both of these, um, products are high in, um, Lactic acid. They have lactic acid in in them. And there's some fermentations that tend more towards acetic acid, like, you know, taste more vinegary, and other ones that taste more mellow um, due to lactic acid. And so we're actually you know, one of the beautiful things of um, working with Christopher's group is to generate all these hypotheses that are based in human studies, and then to be able to reverse translate those back into our lab and study them in animal models. And so right now we're testing in the lab using a mouse model, whether lactic acid can have an outsized impact as one of the prime microbial metabolites in fermented foods that seem to have a big impact on gut microbiome diversity very cool so perhaps not all fermented foods are created equal exactly
5: i'm i'm interested before we kind of flip over to the fiber arm and and what you noticed there because that was also very interesting uh this fermented uh food group you saw on the aggregate a reduction in some of these inflammatory markers i'm i'm interested in Firstly, what you hypothesize was going on here. Uh, What is it specifically about the fermented foods that you think was causing this reduction in inflammatory markers? And I also wonder, and this is probably a little bit of a nerdy question and perhaps digressing, but I'm curious uh, if you thought about measuring intestinal permeability at all. I know that some studies look at zonulin and there seems to be some kind of debate as to whether that is a good biomarker and measure of intestinal permeability or leaky gut, so to speak.
3: Right. So the inflammatory markers, so just to, to back up one tiny step and we covered this a little bit in the intro, but you know, I think it's, um, classically in, um, you know, the immune system is tremendously complex. And so classically, there hasn't been a great way to monitor people's inflammation status. And there you know, are studies out there that monitor, for instance, C-reactive protein or CRP, other studies that mention, um, monitor other markers like, you know, interleukin six or IL six. Um, there are these very specific markers, but these are, you know, uh, two of, you know, hundreds to thousands of different facets of the immune system that one could monitor if the technology existed. And um, we really reasoned that a broader readout of inflammatory status was going to be important to get a broad view of of where the immune system was sitting. And part of this is embedded in the hypothesis that um, chronic simmering inflammation in the industrialized world is what's driving Um, many people in our society towards these different chronic diseases, like, you know, everything from heart disease to cancer to autoimmune disease. And so we were really looking for something that could move the needle on a broad array of markers, indicating less simmering inflammation with the hope that that, you know, potentially one day we could study and would show less Western disease development in people that had lower, lower inflammation. So that's kind of the backdrop here. We have a, a wonderful, Uh, human immune monitoring center at Stanford that allows for, for looking at, you know, 300 to 400 different markers of inflammation for each blood draw. And so that's what we did over the course of this study was monitor a really broad array, um, kind of what we call comprehensive immune profiling, um, to get a sense of people's immune system. And we saw you know, 20 to 30 of these different markers decrease over the course of the intervention. So really this broad signal of decreasing inflammation. So very, very convincing signal. Now, what, um, you are asking is, is what was causing that? And that's kind of the, the million dollar question. And really one of the detractors of doing experiments in humans is getting to the mechanistic insight. So we know from a study like this, we get information that we know is relevant to humans. It relates to diet. It relates to our microbiome um, gives a really robust signal in the immune system, but being able to iterate on the experiments and ask follow-up questions Mm -hmm. of, was it the bacteria in the fermented food? Foods? Was it the metabolites? Was it lactic acid? Was it something that was happening in the small intestine? Did it even depend on the gut microbiome? Could this be fermented foods interacting with our gut lining directly? So these are all follow-up questions that we're pursuing now in mouse models to iterate on this and try to get to the mechanistic explanation. But you hit on a really important question here. We'd love to know why it is fermented foods are um, causing uh, decreases in inflammatory markers.
5: Do you see that that approach as, as a sort of more effective, better use of time for science going forward where you first try and start in a human uh, setting and then work backwards as opposed to running lots of animal studies and, and working forwards?
3: Yeah, I think we have to be very careful about, um, you know, I, I think both of these approaches are incredibly important. There's a been a tremendous amount uh, that we have learned from just the mouse studies and there's an aspect of being able to do biomedical science and be able to conduct research that's translational and impacts humans that relies upon this tremendous foundation of basic science being done outside the context of human studies and so i really think the two complement one mm-hmm. one another very well i think what we don't want to get trapped in is explaining mouse biology for the sake of doing beautiful science we want to use mice in a, in a really you know, either way to inform broad principles that give us this like broad foundational knowledge, or in this reverse translational sense. So, I, I think we have to use both methods, mm-hmm. complementary and uh, complementary ways. But I do think that this way of of doing microbiome science, where you start in a human and you reverse translate to understand it, is incredibly powerful and being embraced by more and more people around the field now. And then to your question about the permeability, you know, this was some looking at leaky gut in this study. This was something that we, um, considered and talked about and the, you know, the methodology for this is, um, it's evolving rapidly right now in the field. You mentioned zonulin. There are other ways of looking at um, different sugar markers that are not metabolizable, but can be absorbed um, either through natural transport processes or through a leaky barrier and looking at ratios of sugars um, can, can be a a marker of leaky gut. And so, um, so we considered a lot of these and decided at the end of the day, um, we're stuck with a, a finite budget and a finite number of things mm-hmm. that we can study and trying to target that to the assays that we think are the, the you know most robust and the most likely to give us a signal. So um, at the time, uh, the leaky gut assays didn't make the cut. They were a little bit too complicated and, and a bit of a leap into the unknown for us. But I think they're of huge interest and, and are kind of on the menu continually. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably be incorporating those into upcoming studies. Some of the most informative lectures I've had the privilege
5: of listening to have been delivered by Dr. Erica Sonnenberg on the microbiome. So let's bring her back here to chat about encouraging better microbial diversity through the food we eat. So let's let's talk about let's talk about food and 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 restoring microbe diversity. When it, it comes to our diet, if we want to encourage this very rich, diverse ecosystem. Of trillions of bacteria in a beautiful balance that are rewarding us, they're keeping helping keep that mucosal layer nice and and thick. Our intestinal cells are happy, they have an energy source, inflammation's down. What are we doing from a, a dietary point of view?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and something that our lab is is actively studying. Um, if you look at all the data from both animal studies and now some more recent human studies, it looks like there's sort of two factors of diet that have emerged as important for a healthy microbiome. One we've talked a lot about, which is dietary fiber. So these complex carbohydrates, we know is what these gut microbes rely on for their energy source. Um. We Our human genome doesn't encode much of a capacity to degrade them. So it's clear that we've rely on our gut microbes to digest these complex carbohydrates. Then they create all the small molecules Justin was talking about, short chain fatty acids and other chemical compounds that um, affect our physiology. So a diet rich in complex carbohydrates seems to be an important facet of maintaining a healthy microbiome. The other aspect of diet that has a that looks like is going to be very important is the consumption of fermented foods. So mm-hmm. these are foods that contain live active microbes um, that when people consume that food, it both lowers inflammation in general and also increases microbiome diversity. And so It's sort of that, again, back to that good and bad microbe situation, you know, in the industrialized world, we don't want to go back to a place where we're not, we don't have access to antibiotics and we don't have access to clean water, Mm -hmm. but we also need to make sure that we're exposing ourselves to microbes because that's from an evolutionary standpoint, what our Mm -hmm. body is expecting. It's expecting to see microbes on a daily basis and fermented foods. We think is an easy and safe way to expose yourself to microbes in a way that's beneficial and doesn't expose ourselves to disease causing bacteria. So fermented things like dairy products, yogurt, Um, And then fermented vegetables like sauerkraut, kimchi, these things are just teeming with healthy bacteria that when people consume them on a regular basis um, improves microbiome diversity and, and helps with inflammation.
3: And, And we can also talk about like what, what is good to not have in the diet that may be beneficial for the gut microbiome. I think the, you know, Western diet, it turns out is, um, Probably a model of what not to be eating when it comes to trying to foster a healthy microbiome. There's, um, you know, high sugar is probably some, you know, or high glycemic foods, you know, simple starches and things like that are probably. problematic in multiple respects. One is providing a really rich um, kind of bacterial media environment in the small intestine. And we know that SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and other small bowel disorders are becoming um, more prevalent in um, industrialized countries. And this corresponds with just eating a diet that's really rich in simple nutrients And if those simple nutrients exceed the absorptive capacity of the small intestine, that is, we can't get them into our bloodstream fast enough, it really creates a rich nutrient environment for bacteria to grow very rapidly within our small intestine, which is probably a huge deviation from the diet that humans had for most of our evolutionary history, which is a diet rich in, in plant material that has relatively low glycemic index. So, so I think that that the simple nutrient diet may present a lot of problems for small intestinal microbiota overgrowth um, and, and weird metabolism to be occurring. I also think there's just you know, a lot of emerging data associated with emulsifiers, these chemicals in processed foods that increase uh, shelf stability, Um, that appear, these appear to be problematic from the standpoint of uh, disrupting the mucus barrier. Artificial sweeteners appear to be um, problematic from the standpoint of misregulating the microbiota in various ways. And that can lead to metabolic syndrome, for instance, in animal models. So, um, there's a lot of things that, um, we're missing in our diet that Mm -hmm. are beneficial for the gut microbiota. And then a lot of things that are now included in the the Western diet that are probably problematic for um, gut biology and the microbiota.
5: In most settings, it's a difficult task for medical doctors to educate patients about diet. 10 to 15 minute consultations with perhaps just a few minutes to touch on nutrition. This means doctors need to be super clear and specific with their communication in order to be effective. I wondered what Dr. Tim Spector, medical doctor, epidemiologist and science writer would say to a patient when short for time. If, you're, if you were sitting down as a physician with a patient and you, had, you could give them three or four or five sort of bullet points that you felt were, were far more beneficial than referring someone to the to this dietary guidelines as they are now, what would that piece of information look like?
2: If I was really keeping it very simple and, and, and high level, I would say uh, try and eat for your gut microbes. Uh, every time you think of food, if you're eating for your gut microbes, you're not going to go far wrong. And if they say, oh, what does that mean? I'd say, well, eat as many diverse plants as you can in a week. And I say, oh, you know, try and go for 30. Uh, you know, remember that uh, nuts and seeds and uh uh, herbs and spices are all part of those plants. Um, try and pick plants that are colourful and, and have lots of flavour because they're, uh, they've are probably got, got uh, polyphenols in it, which are rocket fuel for your microbes, have fermented foods, which are good for your microbes, uh, and you give a list of remind people what they are. Many, mm-hmm. uh, many Brits and Australians don't, you know, don't regularly have them, so you might, you know, there's this stuff called kefir and kombucha and uh, kimchi and sauerkraut, as well as yogurt and cheese. And, uh, and just say your gut microbes don't like uh, ultra-processed food much, so really um, try and cut that out. And uh, then, you know, if they ask, is there anything else I could do? Well, I say, well, you could try, you know, restricted time eating because your gut microbes like uh, a long rest period they like to sleep in, uh, give them a long time. So I think if if every doctor told their patient that, um, I think uh, it would help uh, a lot more people than the reciting these uh, sort of biblical uh, diet guidelines.
5: We know muscle is important for being physically able, moving our body up and down stairs, getting up off the floor, getting in and out of the car etc but muscle is also important for our metabolic health and by that i mean our ability to manage blood glucose and blood lipids getting nutrients to where they need to go and preventing storage of fat where it shouldn't be around our organs to walk us through this here's dr don layman i mean you mentioned their metabolic health and the importance of skeletal muscle and and i think for some people, that might be the first time that they've kind of really heard that or, or thought about that, and and often, I guess, at a high level, you think more of muscle of you know helping you do functional things, get up off the couch, or lift a weight at the gym. Um, so perhaps we just take a further step into the importance of having a good amount of skeletal muscle. What what do we understand about? The, the amount of muscle that we have, particularly as we age, and how that does intersect with our metabolic health?
8: Yeah, so muscle makes up, you know, depending on your body composition, or, you know, 50% of your body, 50% of your protein. Um, and as we age, as we get beyond 40, uh, the efficiency of how the body maintains, it tends to start downward. Uh, muscle is a major source of glucose metabolism it's a major source of fat fatty acid metabolism and if you have problems with blood sugar with blood lipids chances are your muscles aren't healthy so we you know we talk about them from dietary standpoint or heart standpoint or all kinds of things at fat body fat adipose standpoint but the reality is muscle is really where it all begins and and Unless you're super physically active, that is on a downward trend as we get older. So, mm-hmm. you know, how do you manage that? You know, what can we do about it? Those are all topics I think are really interesting. And I think we can do things to make it better.
5: When we say, you know, a good amount of muscle, and if you were to kind of think about <laughs> as, as we age, you know, often you hear people saying, you know, do resistance training. It's important to, to maintain a, a good amount of muscle. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of assuming that there's a bit of a spectrum when, where you go from sort of under-muscled, where maybe you are putting yourself at risk of some of these um, metabolic negative metabolic um, consequences to having sufficient muscle. Is that something that we've been able to quantify within the research? You know, what is a good amount of muscle if someone's listening and thinking, yeah. well, I'd love to, to, to know if we know that firstly and then if I can test it.
8: Yeah. You know, I don't think there is any really good number. We typically think of it from the other direction. We think about what's an unhealthy amount of fat. <laughs> well, you know, we think that, well, if you've got more than 30% body fat, then you're likely going to be at health risk. So, you know, that means the rest of it's lean body mass. You know, mm-hmm. what percentage of that is muscle? Um, you know, I, I, I don't have a real number to give you on something like that. I think that um, you really look, you know, and again, somebody who's six foot six is going to have a different level of muscle than somebody who's five foot, uh, Uh, and they both can be perfectly healthy. So, uh, you know, the issue is, you know, how functional is it? You know, what are you doing? Are you physically moving? Are you physically active? Is it metabolically healthy? And you can be you know, both the activity and the nutrition are, are hand in hand in terms of how healthy it is. So I don't think the amount is the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for any individual, for you or me, we could simply say, well, for me, X amount of muscle is probably a good healthy level, but that's probably quite different than what it would be for you.
5: Is this where strength comes in? Is, is strength a kind of better? Proxy for for sort of determining our you know risk of say uh, frailty or, or even total mortality I often see grip strength used in the in the literature quite a bit
8: um, certainly certainly mobility I, in the aging literature which uh, functional aging is not exactly my specialty but you know walking you know gait, speed and ability to get up out of a chair. And some of those are very much predictors of health and mortality. So strength is certainly part of it. Um, I also think a lot about the metabolic aspect, which, um, someone can be fairly metabolically healthy and not necessarily be super strong. You know, I, I don't, I don't personally think that, uh, resistance exercise is the key to metabolic health, you know, sort of the, the, sort of the flip side of your question. So mm-hmm. I personally think people need to practice some level of both, resist, you know, hip type of exercise, some level of resistance and some level of aerobic because they're not the same outcomes.
5: And, and when you mention metabolic health, um, translate that for someone listening, like what, what, in terms of actually measuring something, Um, Are you talking like HbA1c or fasting blood glucose? What are are we talking about when we mean metabolic health?
8: Yeah, so um, I focus a lot on protein turnover. So uh, having good rates of protein synthesis, responding correctly, I I think that's important. Um, I think blood glucose, blood lipids are also important. Your mitochondrial health determines your ability to Oxidize blood lipids. Um, mm. So, I, I, you know, those are the kinds of things I think about with metabolic health. Mm. Um, do you have the right level of branched chain amino acids? Are you metabolizing your lipids? Are your triglycerides in your blood at the right level? Uh, all of those things are part of that package.
5: So would you would you say the goal here, from from your view, the goal here is to have uh, a sufficient amount of muscle whatever that is for the for the individual to act as a, a good way to kind of dispose of blood glucose to metabolize glucose um, and at the same time healthy functioning mitochondria and trying to avoid that that sort of visceral fat buildup around around the organs is that a kind of decent summary of of metabolic health
8: Yeah. I, you know, again, the amount it's about activity, um, Mm -hmm. the, the larger your muscles are, you know, if I started lifting more weights, um, I would convert muscles toward white muscle type. I would have less mitochondria per unit of muscle. Uh, Mm -hmm. so that doesn't necessarily make it better for metabolizing glucose. Um, I approach it quite differently uh, I, I think about, you know, what's my calorie need? What's my carbohydrate threshold? So there's a minimum need of carbohydrates of around 130 grams per day. We could debate that number. But then I think about you can add about 60 grams per hour of intense exercise. The question is, how do you balance all of those things? Uh, and that, you know, that relates to your muscle mitochondria. So are you doing aerobic Activity. Uh, the strength aspect sort of lets, you know, are you strong enough to do those activities <laughs> uh, functionally? But the size of the muscle doesn't necessarily lead to metabolic health. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to think about animal research a little bit, the uh there's there's classic things in like the swine industry, uh where if you over-muscle an animal, it becomes metabolically incredibly unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're very prone to lactate toxicity and things like that. So big muscle isn't the answer. Healthy muscles is more of a mitochondrial and functional mobility as opposed to just big.
5: You might've heard of growth hormone and IGF-1. Hormones our body manufactures that regulate growth of cells via pathways like mTOR. Such terms typically come up when we're talking about aging. What are these hormones and pathways? And if we are wanting to slow down aging and our risk of disease, what should we consider? Author of Longevity Diet and creator of the Fasting Mimicking Diet, Dr. Walter Longo, joins us to talk about this. If someone's hearing this for the first time, these keywords of mTOR and, and IGF 1, and let's say you meet someone at a dinner party, Walter, and they say, Dr. Longo, you're speaking another language. Um, slow down. What, what do these abbreviations actually mean? And, and for the, the sort of layperson out there, you know, where are these pathways found in the body and why are they important? What is their purpose?
13: Yeah, so IGF-1 refers to insulin-like growth factor one. And so not surprisingly is the main um, f- factor factor in the blood, making us grow, right? So we follow these little people in Ecuador, and they have extremely low uh, IGF-1, and they're about three feet tall, usually, right? So they're, they're born with this uh, growth hormone receptor deficiency, and the result of that, uh, so growth hormone basically regulates the levels of insulin-like growth factor 1. So if you have a low, low growth hormone receptor, you have low IGF-1. And the other one that you mentioned is TOR, target of rapamycin. And so this is a, um, a X downstream, but also somewhat parallel to IGF-1. Um, and so TOR is also at the center of growth. And, and this is how we um, identified the TOR as cis kinase pathway over 20 years ago. Its role in aging because we saw that uh, when we mutated very simple organisms, the ones that lived the longest were dwarf. It was, they became much smaller, but they, they, we could make it live, you know, three, five fold longer than the regular ones. And so, and that was a mutation in the torus kinase pathway, meaning we inactivated torus kinase, and all of a sudden these little uh, microorganisms, they could live a lot longer. So yeah, that's a target of rapamycin. Rapamycin then, not surprisingly, is a drug that uh, ended up being demonstrated to extend the lifespan of mice uh, and in a way that uh I think most people will say is more is superior than anything else we've seen um in history, right? So um the, seems like blocking rapamycin, especially if you start in middle age, uh works better than anything we've we've ever seen. Um, yeah, so that that those are TOR and IGF one. And, um, and so we and many, many other, in fact, I almost 10 years ago, I organized a conference, uh, where we brought all the top geneticists and experts in, in the biology of aging from all over the world. And we asked the question, what is the best target for, to extend human lifespan, health span? And the consensus was that the growth hormone IGF one, uh, was the very top. It was the one that got most votes. It didn't, they didn't get everybody's vote but Certainly, get most votes, and uh, in, in that paper, we wrote a paper about that. And then in the paper, we actually put the votes. You know, we we, we wrote down who was present. All the present were authors of the paper, and um, and then yeah. So then, I think that, that yeah, the, not the consensus, but certainly the most votes go to growth hormone receptor yeah.
5: IGF one. Are these pathways in all tissues? Of the body, or are they, are they only found in in certain cells, like muscle cells, or will you find sort of mTOR and these kind of growth pathways throughout all tissues? TOR is uh, um, everywhere,
13: and um, and so is uh, M, uh, I would say the IGF one is in the great majority of cells. Um, probably not all of them, but let say the, the great majority uh, now they, uh, in different cells and different tissues, they can have very, very different effects, right? So, um, some, um, uh, some cells in some moments have the job of making glucose, you know, like liver, uh, and some cells have the job of at the same time of using glucose, right? So you can imagine now the a brain cell and a liver cell during a starvation period, uh, would do something very, very different. You know, one, is trying to deal with fasting and one is trying to do its job of uh, functioning normal, as normal as possible, right? So, yeah, but then just to tell you these this genes and, and proteins are everywhere, but they can have quite different uh,
5: jobs depending on the state. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I feel like there's a some kind of general fear out there around these pathways but from, from my understanding and reading your work and others is that these are very, very important and they're critical but are we talking about sort of when they become hyperactive, uh, overactive that we see deleterious effects in, in physiology? Yes, I think a good
13: example is insulin, right? So if you think about 50 years ago and you think of insulin and uh, you think of insulin as a very, very positive uh, um, hormone, and then, um, but then it took a while right, to l- realize that uh, if you have too much insulin all the time, then you become insulin resistant and, um, and then um, you have diabetes, right? So it's the same or similar with these growth factors uh that um they um uh, you have to have the right amount and um and there's probably um you know at some point in some tissues you might develop resistance to these growth factors uh but you also might develop hyperactivity of these factors uh, leading to all kinds of problems and so um in cancer certainly lots of epidemiological studies and our own studies and and mouse studies, and uh, so there's um, a lot of different type of studies, including the genetics one, suggesting there is a a tight link between the levels of IGF-1 and and cancer, but also the levels of IGF-1 and lots of other problems. Um, So meaning that if you have a lot of it all the time, um, you're probably not going to do very well. And not surprisingly, people that have acromegaly, so they're born very high levels of IGF one they have a short lifespan um, and they die fairly early from all kinds of problems
5: as we get older it gets more difficult to preserve muscle mass sometimes this leads people to make the claim that we should just dial up our protein to super high levels when we get older and problem fixed easy peasy but is sarcopenia and loss of muscle primarily a protein problem what else do we need to consider here Dr. Stuart Phillips and Dr. Christopher Gardner provide greatly needed context to this topic. If we are thinking about the preservation of, of skeletal muscle as someone ages, so you said earlier that as people uh, age, their protein intake is dropping off. Now, I'm also going to go out on a limb here and say that they're becoming more sedentary. And as I understand it when it comes to the stimulus for protein, Preservation of muscle tissue. Resistance training is is a much greater stimulus than protein intake. So my question to you is: is the problem a lack of protein, or is it a lack of resistance training and stimulus? You know, I, I learned <laughs> in my undergraduate career, or undergraduate degree, I should say, um, that you know, when it comes to physiology, structure reflects function. So. How much of this problem is caused by a lack of protein as people age versus a lack of exercise?
4: Yeah, great question. Clearly, you've been reading my Twitter feed, uh, so yeah, like, I, I would never argue. Uh, exercise or activity trumps, you know, in my opinion, diet, with particularly with respect to body composition and protein. Like hands down, uh, we don't have the money or resources to do the type of studies where we control diet strictly enough to look at the effect of protein on body composition. But from an observational standpoint, older people who consume more protein, uh, hang on to more muscle. uh, They don't progress towards frailty. They fall less. um, And, you know, much again to uh, a number of people's chagrins, they don't live shorter lives. (laughs) And so, you know, as laudable goals for an aging person, I look to, you know, some of the issues around, you know, falls, which are, you know, key, key, uh, watershed moments and say, well, I don't know. Uh, it seems that there's an association with greater protein that may reflect greater physical activity. And if that's the case, then you're preaching to the convert. You wouldn't get me off this show without me saying that, you know, uh, Exercise or activity is king and diet is queen. So, and if that means a hierarchy, then I, I, I guess I would, I would be supporting that notion.
5: Mm-hmm. But are you saying as well, just to, just to be clear, in, in elderly populations where protein intake has been assessed, are these populations consuming under that 1.2 gram per kilogram sort of target that you mentioned?
4: S- some are. It depends. I mean, like the the frailer and the more sedentary uh individuals, yeah, they they get you can get them below the RDA. Some of them are close to the EAR. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, you put an older person in hospital for a knee replacement or a hip replacement and do trade studies on what they're fed in hospital or what the time they spend in hospital if they're there, um, they consume about 0.6 grams per kilo per day. Mm-hmm. Uh so you know, there are situations where it's it's clear that people aren't meeting their protein needs, but I'm not saying on a population level, and, and this is where the nuance is sort of lost is that there's rife protein deficiency. There's not, there's, there's rife overeating of, as you mentioned, hyperpalatable foods for sure.
12: And to bring in another perspective here, right? So as you're aging, there's loneliness, depression, issues with dentition, bad gums, bad teeth, People just aren't eating enough, right? Is it really that they're not getting enough protein or they're not getting enough calories or not enjoying their food enough? So to help some of these folks, it's not just that we would have to get them more protein. It's mm-hmm. that we would have to improve their mood, their social lives, look at their teeth, et cetera. So I, I think it, it gets even more complex. If, if we were, Stu, to have the money to do those kinds of intervention studies, and we don't, but it would be nice. So if anybody's listening that wants to give us those those funds, we're open. Uh, There would be a number of angles to address, and protein would absolutely be one of them, but it would be one of several.
4: I I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, aging is a complex problem, and it's not solved by one thing or another. And, and, you know, that's the the traditional grant-getting reductionist type approach that's probably been oversubscribed to without trying to bring together groups of individuals to talk about complex issues like cardiovascular disease, cancer, aging, um, you know, from multiple perspectives rather than siloed ways of looking at it. I I wouldn't disagree.
5: Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a comment on the YouTube videos or a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I, myself and my team will take notes of these comments, when planning for future episodes finally the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends that's theproof.com forward slash friends enjoy your week stay well and i look forward to catching you in the next episode